Good morning. It is a great morning. It has been a blessing to be able to worship God together with you here today. There have been a number of things happening uh, in our church family and extended church family as well, and we want to uh, remember to continue to pray for Brenda Clausen and Ken and their family as they're continuing on a long, hard road. We also want to offer our condolences to Vernon Marlene Harms on the passing of your nephew, uh, I believe Stephen Swatsky is his name, and our condolences to you. We understand that he uh, lost his battle with leukemia and uh, went to be with the Lord about a week and a half ago, so our condolences to you in that. So we are mindful that this, this life is not all there is, and it might be shorter than we think, and this is where our faith in God really makes all the difference. This morning, I would invite you now to bow with me as we consider what this faith in God looks like in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that even in the trials and tests of life, even as we are just reminded of, God, that as we put our trust, our confidence in you, that as we love you, God, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, we have this hope that you will bring good, that you will bring, that you will bring joy, Lord, even out of heartache, and that out of the most bitter farewell, Lord, you will bring a joyful reunion. And so, Lord, in these things, we take comfort this morning. And now, God, I simply ask that your Holy Spirit would fall fresh on this place, Lord. Would you be very real to each one of our hearts, God, as we consider your word and what you have said to us, the Lord Jesus, in regards to this great gift of salvation and the grace that you have so freely given us, Lord. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what it means to each one of us here today. Bless your word and give me the boldness to speak it freely as you would desire, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now this morning, as we have already read, we are going to look at the account written for us in Mark chapter 12 of Jesus' conversation with a lawyer. Now before we get to the text, of course we could point out that this lawyer, I'm I'm using that term as an extension of the description of him being an expert in the law, Therefore, we can extrapolate that he is a lawyer, being an expert in the law. And as we all know about lawyers, it's incredibly easy to tell jokes about them, right? We all have probably heard or laughed at a good lawyer joke or two, but I wasn't sure if I was going to tell one this morning, because the problem is, lawyers don't think that they're funny, and no one else thinks that they're jokes. So, they're tough to tell sometimes. Okay, I'll have to tell one. I'll tell one. I can't resist... The story goes that a newspaper ran the front page headline, Half of the lawyers in our county are crooks. Well, not surprisingly, the lawyers were furious, and the Association of Lawyers in the county threatened to sue the newspaper unless the libelous headline was retracted. So the newspaper duly signed an agreement that they would retract the headline. And true to their word, the very next week, the front page headline read, Half of the lawyers in our county are not crooks. Think about it. You'll get it. All right, enough picking on lawyers this morning, at least for the time being. Would you turn with me again to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to take a closer look at this text. I'd like to have 
If you have your Bible with you, please have it open there this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time there in Mark chapter 12 and verses 28 to 34. Beginning in verse 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, speaking about Jesus, he asked Jesus, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. It is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all thy heart, with all your understanding, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared him, dared question him further. I want you to consider this text for a moment from the perspective of the lawyer. Now, this scribe, this expert in the law, this lawyer, has come to hear Jesus' teaching... And we know from Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34, the parallel account to this, a few more details. And I want to draw to your attention that this lawyer has a lot going for him. He has a whole lot of, let's say, religious collateral to bring with him to this debate. He is, first of all, extremely well-versed in the Word of God. This is the first thing he has going for him. He knows God's Word and the law of Moses better than most anyone. In fact, the parallel account in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four calls him an expert of the law. Now, to be considered an expert in any field is a heady word, isn't it? What are you good at? What is your field? Are you a farmer? If you're a farmer, you'd like to be considered an expert farmer, wouldn't you? But that's a pretty lofty term. If you're a banker, you'd like to be considered an expert banker. Whatever your field is, to be called an expert is to be considered the best. And so here we see he is not just a scrub in his field, he is an expert. And when we consider that by this time of Jewish history, the Pharisees had developed the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law into a complex system. Remember, it started with Ten Commandments. You know how many they had by this time? 613. They had taken the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and they had... They had extrapolated from them so many different rules and subsets to these rules that they had 613 of them by this time, 365 negative commands, don't do these things, with 248 positive commands, do these things. So you can see which side of the ledger they're a little heavy on, right? They're heavy on the don't do stuff. And doing stuff, well, you know, that's there too. It's just not as big of an emphasis. And so... Here we see that for someone to be an expert in the law meant that he had to be well-versed in all 613 of these commands, these rituals, these subsets that they included. And so that would mean, by very default, to be an expert in this meant he had devoted his entire life. From an early age, he would have been groomed specifically for this job. He would have been memorizing God's word and his law from the earliest age And so now in his adult years, he is an expert, well-versed 
in all of the law. He has a lot going for him. He is extremely intelligent. He knows God's word. Secondly, we see that by very default of this, he would have been a devoutly religious man. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were known to be the most religious of an already extremely religious society. You see, the Jews were by default God's people. And so as a culture, they were religious. Not, there, there was no such thing as atheists among the Jews. Atheists did not exist. There was no such thing as agnostics either. They believed in Jehovah God, Yahweh, the God of creation. And so they were an extremely spiritual, religious culture. And so to be at the top of that heap would show that this man was pious in, in all of his life, all of his behavior. He knew God's word so well. And to be considered respected in this field, he would have had to put those things into practice with enough skill that others who would have examined his life would have been impressed. This is a truly good man, a religious man. And at least by external appearances, he would have been considered the, the best of God's kingdom. And people would have aspired to be just like him. Thirdly, we see that he is a man of intellectual sincerity. You know, even though it's implied that the lawyer had come there with the intent of trying to trip Jesus up with a tough question to test him, he couldn't help but be impressed as he's listening to the previous conversation that he comes into. He couldn't help but be impressed with how well Jesus has answered a complicated question that this group of Sadducees has thrown at Jesus about marriage. They try tripping Jesus up by saying this complicated thing about one brother dies leaving the wife to the next brother and that brother dies leaving the wife to the next brother and that brother dies and when they enter God's kingdom, whose wife is, is, is she going to belong to? Which brother gets the wife in the kingdom? And Jesus, of course, explains that it's not at all like that. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is entirely different than what you understand the kingdom of earth to be. He speaks so well and so skillfully that we, we see here that this lawyer is impressed. And so we sense a change in his attitude. We sense that he comes here maybe with the intent of trying to trip Jesus up, and yet by being impressed by how skillfully Jesus answers the question, we see a change in attitude that perhaps this next question is off the script. Maybe he came there with a question a little bit different than the one he asks. And so we sense a level of sincerity when he asks the question, Teacher, of all the commandments, which is the most important? You see, consider 613 commandments. They want to know what's the top of the heap. These are a lot to keep. Which one is the most important? And so it seems here in asking this question, he is sincerely seeking the answer. And you know what? There are many people in our world today who ask many questions, but they've already made up their minds on what the correct answer is. You ever come across someone like that where they try to trip you up with a question, but they already know the answer or think they do? But what happens when you tell them something different than what they think the answer is? Will they accept it? No, because they've already made up their minds. Right? We sense here that even though he's asking this question, he hasn't yet made up his mind. He is open to hearing Jesus' response. You know, a lot of people... They will ask all sorts of questions. The cynics, the skeptics will ask questions about Christianity and the faith. And yet when they're given an answer, they reject it. They wouldn't know the truth if it smacked them in the face like a two-by-four. And the Pharisees 
And these teachers of the law, many of them fall exactly into that category. They are being confronted by the truth right in their teeth by the Lord Jesus. And they're rejecting it. They're finding ways around it because they've already made up their minds. But this lawyer appears to be different. He's a man of intellectual integrity who appears to be seeking the truth even if where it leads is not what he expected. So, we see that he knows God's word. He's devoutly religious, a man of intellectual sincerity. He's genuine. And fourthly, we see that he understands the supremacy of love over religious ritual. You see, when Jesus answered his question by saying that the two, if you don't know these two commandments, it's time to go back to Sunday school. The two most important commandments are what? Come on, someone. There are only two. He made it simple for us. What are they? That's right. Keeps it real simple for us. I love that about Jesus, his teaching. Love God and love people. If you can't memorize the other 613, here's the two to remember. Love God with everything you've got, and then love other people as you love yourself. That means treat them right. If you're going to treat yourself right, treat others right. If you're going to put your own interests as something important, put others' interests as something even more important. This is what Jesus says, boiling it down. Love God with everything you've got, and love people as you love yourself. Such a simplistic answer in one sense, and yet we see that upon hearing Jesus' response, the lawyer says, you are correct. You are right. I agree with you. And he goes on to expound upon his understanding that loving God and loving others is worth more, is more important than putting all of the other 611 commands together. (laughs) Think about that. This is at the top of the heap. You see, this lawyer had a lot going for him. He knows God's word, devoutly religious, intellectually sincere, and he understands. This is so important. Most of the Pharisees miss this. He understands the supremacy of love over ritual. And this sounds like a man, to me anyways, who's got it all together. Doesn't he sound like that? Doesn't he sound like a guy that you'd like to be friends with? A guy you'd like to know? A guy you'd maybe like to be like? You know... If anyone of his day could say for certain that a man was going to heaven and would be welcomed into God's kingdom, this was the man. Right? And yet, look at what Jesus says to him. What does he say? Does Jesus say to him, I can't wait till you get to heaven. You're just the kind of man we need up there. Is that what he says to him? No, he doesn't. Or does he say, you're absolutely going to love the mansion that I'm going to prepare for you up there it is, it is amazing. You're going to love it. Is that what he says? No. He doesn't say that either. I want you to look again at Jesus' reply. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Are you getting this? In other words, you're close, but you're not in. You see, there's a difference between being not far from the kingdom and inside the kingdom. And now, while it is certainly possible that the lawyer made it the rest of the way inside, you know what? There's no scriptural evidence one way or the other as to whether or not this man actually made that last step to go from being not far from the kingdom to in the kingdom. There is no evidence given as to whether this man died within sight of the gates or whether he made it through. Because you see, not far away is still not in. Now, as many of you know, 
my good friend, Steve Bryce, and I, we try to get away on an annual canoe trip at least once every summer, usually a three- or four-day trip. And basically what we try to do is we try to get as far into the wilderness as we can get in that short amount of time. And you'd be amazed the kind of trouble you can get yourself into in four days. So this is what we try to do every year. We just like to get out there. And one of the very first trips that we did as adults, I should say, one of the first big trips that we did was back in 2008. We did a trip on the Bird River, which is located east of Lac du Bonny in Nopaming Provincial Park. And there the river runs primarily east to west, twisting and turning its way through some of the most beautiful and rugged land that you can imagine. And it finally empties itself into Lac du Bonny Lake itself. Now at that time, it was by far our most ambitious and challenging voyage that we had ever undertaken. Everything from the size and number of the rapids and portages to the length of the trip itself tested our abilities to both plan and execute a successful trip. And tested we were. We were tested to the limit. On day two, we decided to test our abilities on a class two rapid. And while in the process of doing this, we ended up pinning our canoe on top of a submerged boulder in the middle of the rapid. We're stuck there with the raging water behind us on top of this rapid. We're looking at each other. What are we going to do? And these hairline cracks start going up the side of the boat. And I'm going, oh my goodness. And water starts shooting through one of the cracks, pinned in the middle of this rapid. And yeah, we're in a precarious situation. So to save the boat, we end up jumping out of the side of the boat into the rapid, holding onto the canoe, we managed to yank it off of the boulder, ride out the rapid into the bottom. And did I mention that this canoe was a rental canoe? And the people who rented it to us, the good, gracious people at Mech, for whatever reason, sized us up and decided to give us the brand new rental that had never yet been out on the, on the river. And they were like, oh, this boat's beautiful. We're like, yeah, it doesn't have a scratch on it. Yeah, there was a couple when we were done. So anyways, that was day two. After patching up the cracks as best we could with some electrical tape, we didn't even have duct tape, lesson learned. With electrical tape, we end up continuing along in our voyage. Day three, while portaging a series of rapids that kind of ran through this canyon, we got our portage trail mixed up with some quad trails that some cottagers had cut. And so we took some wrong turns, I guess, and we ended up lugging our boat and our gear through this sweltering heat. It was over 30 degrees over rough terrain for over three kilometers. And so, as you can well imagine, if you've ever done this kind of work, you know it's not fun. By the time we get back to the river, we're exhausted. And we get to the river, and we've still got a long ways to go to the end of the day. And just as we get back into the river and load it up, and finally we're off the trail, the wind starts picking up right into our teeth, a straight west wind. We're heading straight west. It's in our teeth, and it's gusting up to 30, 40 kilometers an hour. And did I mention that this is just as the river starts to widen out as it nears Lake Lactobani itself. And so as we're getting closer to the lake, the waves are getting bigger. We're, you know, if we're not paddling as hard as we can, we stop and look at the shore. We're actually, are we moving backwards? Yeah, better keep paddling. There was no time to relax. And we're getting closer to the lake, and... I'll just pause here for a moment. If you're thoroughly impressed with our prowess and skill at this point, just wait, it gets better. Because you see, as we're getting to the lake, it dawns upon us that being fully confident of our canoeing skill and prowess, we would park our plant car 
on the other side of the lake, over 20 kilometers of open water away. That was our destination for the night. And if you've ever been on open water (laughs) in 30 to 40k winds, you know how big those swells can get in a hurry. Now try doing it in a fully loaded canoe. So very quickly, our thoughts turned from how are we going to cross the lake tonight to how are we going to get out of the lake with our boat still in the upright position. (laughs) So somehow we managed to pull this off. We managed to spin our boat around in the bottom of a swell, ride the waves back in on an angle, and we end up landing our boat on a cottager's lawn. We didn't care where we landed. We were on shore. We pull our boat up onto the cottager's lawn. We leave it behind. We start hiking down the road, and we end up finding a lodge nearby. There we manage to find a young man who was willing to drive us the 25 kilometers around the lake to our waiting car. Of course, for a small price, but we were willing at that point to pay whatever. And so we hop in the car, and finally, okay, it's over. We drive around the lake. We get to our car. He drops us off. And here we're we're just so exhausted, so relieved to be finally at the car. And he drops us off. We thank him profusely. We pay him. I think we gave him more than what he'd asked for. And as we're going over to the car, we're discussing that rather than eating our trail rations for that evening's supper, you know what, I think there's a restaurant nearby. Let's go have a thick, juicy steak. You know, that's all we wanted at this point. We're so hungry. And we walk over to the car, and I have my little backpack with me with some water in it for the, for the ride around. And as I start fishing around inside of the backpack, suddenly... I realize that something's amiss, and I start fishing around. I start looking in every zipper, frantically searching. I am missing something very important. Can you guess what it is? No keys. No keys. He's gone. He's gone, and we're at the car. We're we're in sight of the car. We can see the car. We can touch the car. But we cannot get inside the car, and we certainly cannot drive the car. We had come all this way that day, and we couldn't get in. We were so close, but so far. Because you see, without that key, we could not drive that car. We were stuck. And even though we had worked so hard that day and come so far, and just when we thought we were at the finish line, we were denied access. Why? Because we didn't have the key. You see, the lawyer was not far from the kingdom of God, but he was still not in. You see, like us, he was so tantalizingly close that he could taste it. But he was still on the outside looking in. Why? Because he lacked the key. And what is the key? The key is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the key. You see, the lawyer had absolutely everything else going for him, all except one small yet crucial thing. He did not have that faith in Jesus Christ. He had not yet made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Lord. He had not yet made that decision that Jesus was who he claimed to be and so threw himself upon his mercy, asking for his forgiveness, asking him to come in and change his heart and his life to save his soul from death and hell and to reserve his place, assuredly reserve it, in the kingdom of God. He was on the threshold, but he was not yet through the door. And here is the sobering truth. 
the runner who quits the marathon on mile 25 has the same result as the one who quits on mile 1. The man who drowns within sight of the shoreline is just as dead as the man who drowns a thousand miles out to sea. He is close, but the end result is the same. You see, my friends, when it comes to salvation, close is not close enough. It is either in or it is out. And it all hinges on what we decide to do with this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and decide we must. We cannot simply remain ambivalent towards him. We cannot simply remain neutral to say, yes, he was a good teacher, but I'm not sure what that means for my life. We, we cannot remain in that category. Jesus does not allow it. Jesus demands that either he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, or he is not. And Jesus' expectations are very clear. He spelled them out. He demands complete allegiance for his followers. Halfway is not enough. Three-quarters of the way is not enough. An inch from the finish line of full devotion is not enough. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You see, there are many people in our world today who believe in God. People who believe in God who even go to church, who try their best to be good people and to love their neighbor. They have yet remained ambivalent towards Jesus. They are not hostile towards him. They haven't outright rejected him, but they aren't in love with him either because they have never gotten personal with him. They have never gone beyond that level of, yes, he's, he's out there. He's a good moral teacher. I think he's a good guy. I think he's the son of God, but they've never made it personal in their own lives to say, he is the son of God. He is my savior. I have put my complete allegiance, my complete faith in him. I have staked eternity on him. A lot of people are just like that lawyer. They know God's word. They're religious. Yes, they, they're sincere to a level in their pursuit. And yeah, they're great people. They, they know that love is important. And they might be the most caring, loving person that you would care to, care to meet. But yet, it's through their own ability that they're coming to God. And if it's through your own ability, you will come up short. You see, on the day of judgment, I believe that there are a lot of people who thought that they were in who will be shocked to hear, you're out. Why? Because they thought that their own ability, their own effort and determination, they, they made it to the car, but they left the key behind. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus states some of the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, catch that, many, not a few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. You see, the truth is, we can make it to heaven's gates on our own effort. We can make it there, but we cannot enter without Jesus. All eternity hinges on this. Do you know Jesus? 
And more importantly, does Jesus know you? I want you to truly consider whether or not this could apply to you right here today. You see, the gospel is such a beautiful thing in that it levels the playing field entirely. It levels it between the ultra-religious, the the do-gooders, and the worst of the sinners. You see, we we like to evaluate people on external appearances. And we say, yeah, this religious lawyer, he's so close to the kingdom, he's going to get in by default. And and this guy, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, he's a terrible guy, there's no way he's getting in. And yet the gospel does away with all of those things and it levels the playing field entirely. No matter how righteous or good you are, no matter how sinful and bad you are, it's the same way to enter in. The gate is Jesus Christ. He is the key. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man will enter into the kingdom of his Father except by him. Jesus is the key. He is the way. Do you know Jesus? You see, whether you are brand new to Christianity, whether you are brand new to this idea of faith, or whether you've heard all of these things a hundred times before, it makes no difference to Jesus. Either he knows you or he doesn't. Either he is your Savior and your Lord, or he is not. You may have gotten everything else right. You might know God's word better than anyone else you know. You might be more devoutly religious than even this lawyer. You might be genuinely sincere, and you might even be the most kind, loving person that anyone would care to meet. But the problem is that too often we overestimate our own goodness and underestimate the reality of our own sin. Our sin, which is an offense before a holy God, whether it is, whether it is great or whether it is small, the smallest of sins, the, so, the smallest of sins, the smallest of what we might call a white lie separates us from a perfect and holy God. If we've got one speck of it in our lives... That's enough to cast us from his presence for all of eternity. The the word of God is clear on this. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. The Bible says that the heart of man is so desperately wicked that none of us can fully understand its depths. And we tend to think that, yeah, maybe I've done some things wrong, but I'm a lot closer to God than that guy. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but I try to love my neighbor. I try to be a good person. I think that'll be good enough. I think God will accept that. But my friends, God will not rate eternity. He does not grade whether you are in or whether you are out on the curve. It, comparisons have nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter how you rank next to the other guy. What matters is you. God will not judge eternity on the curve. God will judge eternity on what you have done with Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not just a nice upgrade on your life. Jesus is not just a nice, you know, pick-me-up over our already good lives. No, Jesus is the rescuer of people whose sin, great or small, is sending them to an eternity without God, without Christ, without hope in this world. All of us are born into this position under condemnation. For we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, both notorious sinners and religious experts of the law included. So if you have not made the real and personal decision to place your faith in Jesus as first your Savior and then as your Lord to save you, if you have not invited him 
to come into your life and to change you from the inside out, then the reality is Jesus doesn't know you. And like the lawyer, no matter how close to the kingdom you are, you could be standing on the doorstep unless you take that last step of faith, you will be on the outside looking in. And so the most important question you can ever ask in your life is this. How can I be saved? How can I take that last step through the door? How can I know Jesus? And how can I be confident that Jesus knows me? I always make this as simple as possible. It's as simple as your ABCs. It means admit, believe, and confess. First, if you are serious about this, we have to admit our sin before a holy God. We have to admit our sin. We have to face the hard reality that we can't earn or work our way into God's kingdom. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Like the rest, we are all born deserving of wrath in our sin. That is what we deserve. We have to admit that. We have to admit our sin. Secondly, we have to believe. This is so simple and yet so profound. We believe in Jesus. What does that mean, believing in Jesus? It means a lot more than just believing that he was a historical figure. Believing in Jesus means that we believe that he is the Son of God, that he came into the world, lived a perfect life. Not one stain was upon him, not one sin. And so because of that, he was the perfect Lamb of God, able to go onto the cross to die as a death that we deserved, in our place. And because he's the son of God, he didn't commit one sin in his life. Not one word of a lie ever came out of his lips. Not one impure thought ever crossed his mind. He lived such a perfect life that he was the unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb of God that when he went on that cross and he died, he took the full brunt of God's wrath that we deserve Because of our sin, he took every last drop of it on himself. Incredible. One theologian put it this way. It's as though if you pictured the weight of all of humanity's sin for all of time as a sewer, and all of those sewer pipes intersected into one moment in time, it's as though the entire weight of that sewer of sin of all of the world was dumped upon Jesus Christ as he hung on that cross. Consider what he has done to purchase our redemption, to purchase our freedom, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could enter into his Father's kingdom. Not from our own works, not by earning our way there, by how good we are, but by simply receiving his gift of grace, saying, I've already taken the wrath, I've taken the judgment, I've taken the condemnation, and now you can be free. And not just sort of free, but truly free, he says. And so it begins with faith. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe that his his sacrificial act was enough. It was enough for me. It was enough for my sin, and we simply accept it. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but simply as a free gift of God's amazing love and grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. So we admit that we're sinners. We believe in Jesus. And thirdly, we confess that he is now our Lord. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Incredible. Just like that. A, B, C. You admit, believe, and confess. This is how we can move from being not far from the kingdom to in the kingdom. And now in a few moments, I'm going to go to prayer, and I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to give you an invitation that here today you can make a decision. It's your decision. It's a personal decision. No one can make this decision for you. Certainly not me. I want you to make this decision because I believe that this is the difference between death and life. I have staked my entire life on this truth, that Jesus saves sinners, and that Jesus saved this sinner. I have staked everything on this truth, and I believe it to the core of my soul. From the top of my head to the tips of my toes, I believe it to be true, and it motivates my life. It is why I've shared this with you today, because I believe that once you know Jesus, and Jesus knows you, it changes everything. You have passed from almost in to all the way. Your place around God's table in his house is assured. You don't have to wonder about what happens after you die. You can know. You can know before you leave here today that you are right with God, that you have received his gift of grace, and that you are now his child. It changes everything. I'm going to give you that invitation in a few moments, and I'm going to go back to my canoe story. Some of you might still be wondering what happened next. (laughs) How did we get out of that situation? And let me just say that as we sat there, utterly defeated, dejected, considering the prospect of what we were going to do next, were we going to try to hitchhike our way back around the lake to get the key and then hitchhike back around, go back and get our stuff? We just didn't know what we were going to do. We were just defeated. We were tired. We didn't know if we were going to sleep under the car that night, what we were going to do. Utterly dejected, I sent up a one-word prayer. Help. You ever sent up that one before? (laughs) It was a simple prayer. Help, God. I need some help right now. And as suddenly as I sent up that one-word prayer, I remembered something. And so I I fished into my, my pocket. I grabbed my wallet, which I had carried with me. I opened up the change purse. I fished around inside, and there it was. My spare key that I put in there years earlier, just in case. I had forgotten it was in there. I didn't even know I had that spare key on me. It's the one and only time that I ever used it. (laughs) But boy, was I thankful that it was there. And you know what? Just like that, everything changed. The world changed around us. We were dejected forlorn, hopeless, and suddenly we're euphoric, we're high-fiving, we're, we're chest-bumping, we're so thrilled. Everything has changed in an instant. And let me tell you, my friends, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it can change just that fast. So often we think that things have to happen in these long, arduous processes, and yes, there's a lot of room in life for that, a lot of room in our faith journey for that, but when it comes to salvation... God's word makes it clear it happens just like that. We move from death to life. We move from despairing to hope 
beyond this life. Oh, my friends, it can change just like that. And I know what some of us are thinking here today. I've been in this place before, and we begin to play these, these games in our mind, and we overcomplicate things. We say, you've got a point, but I need more time to think about it. Or, you know what, I think you're right, but I've got to wait until I straighten some things out in my life first before I can make this decision. I'm sure I'll get around to it at some point, just not today, not right now. But let me just cut through those voices that are going on in your head right now, some of you, and let me tell you the truth. Salvation can be yours before you walk out the doors today. Because the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, not tomorrow, not the next day. Today, this hour, this minute, salvation can be yours because there's not another single thing you've got to do to earn it. Jesus is here. He's holding it out. And he says in his word, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will eat with him. I will have fellowship with him and he with me. What a beautiful invitation. God does not force his way through that door. He simply stands and he says, Let me in. Let me come in. Let me change your life from the inside out and walk with me through this life and into the next, fully confident that you have passed from being not far from the kingdom to in the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, now with our hearts humbled before you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, Lord, we come before you equal. There is no hierarchy here between us. Lord, the gospel levels the playing field. Whether we've been to church every single day of our entire lives or have never been before, it makes no difference in your sight. Whether we have done something so bad we think you could never forgive us, Lord, we know that the vilest offender, the worst of sinners who truly believes we will receive in that very moment your pardon and your grace and become your child. And so, God, as we come before you equal, Lord, there are many of us here today who have made this decision to follow you many years ago. And, Lord, I pray that this gospel message, even though we've made this decision, Lord, would stir us up again, that that your gospel is so beautiful in our lives that it would just fire us up, Lord, to live our lives more fully devoted to you, that we would just love you more deeply, because isn't that the greatest command, to love you with everything we've got, not holding anything back. Oh, God, help us to love you more and forgive us for where we have lacked in love, for where we have allowed our love to grow cold. Oh, Lord, forgive us and rekindle, Lord, that first love within us, that we would love you, O God, the God who first loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. O God, we love you today. Help us to love you more. And, Father, out of that love would it overflow that we would love our neighbors that we would love others, that we would even love our enemies, even as you have loved us. Father, help us today. And now, Lord, for those here today who have not made this decision, in their heart, Lord, they know the truth, that they have not yet put their faith, their trust in you as their Savior and their Lord. God, we know your heart towards them. We know by your Holy Spirit, that you are a gracious and loving God who would turn no one away, who comes to you humbly saying, 
God, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, for my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I admit it before you. And I believe in Jesus Christ. And so I would invite you, if, if God is speaking to your heart right now, make these words your own. Just, just pray them through from a sincere and genuine heart. And I'll just pray them out for you. Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sins and my place so that I could be forgiven. And God, now I place my hope and my faith in you. Would you grant me, Lord, your salvation, that I could become your child and enter your kingdom? I will declare and confess that you are now my Lord and Savior. Father, help me from this day forward to walk with you humbly by grace. And if you prayed that prayer right now and you meant it, if you prayed it from your heart, I want to tell you that the angels of heaven are rejoicing. And God, we know that you are rejoicing with us right now today. And so God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would seal and and underlie, Lord, undergird every decision that was made here this this moment right now, Father. We pray that we as your church would be built up, God, by your gospel of your grace as it's poured out into our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.